Hello, ladies and gentlemen. This is Dan Trotter, Predictive Bible Studies. In this audio, I'm going to cover 1 Timothy 6, verses 1 through 10. Our context is this. In chapter 5, Paul talked about honoring elders and honoring widows. And he starts out chapter 6 with talking about slaves honoring masters. So we start with verses 1 and 2 in 1 Timothy 6. All who are under the yoke as slaves must regard their own masters to be worthy of all respect, so that God's name and his teaching will not be blasphemed. Those who have believing masters should not be disrespectful to them because they are brothers, but should serve them better since those who benefit from their service are believers and dearly loved. Teach and encourage these things. How about that? Christian slave master and a Christian slave are brothers and are dearly loved. Think about the impact that has on the institution of slavery. Speaking of which, skeptics often use this passage to show that Christianity favored slavery. Well, this is why, and, and then what they say is Paul didn't advocate slave revolts and the abolition of slavery. Well, this is why two-thirds of the Roman Empire were slaves. Christianity was mainly focused in or concentrated in the slave population because most of the Christians were poor, so I'm sure that many of them were slaves. Now, if Christianity had pushed slave revolts, the faith would have been immediately smashed. The authorities would have come in, put all the Christians in jail, and that would have been the end of it. But Christianity's strictures on slave masters and also on slaves made them brothers, which led eventually to the breakdown of slavery. At least many people historically think that's true, and I don't doubt it in the least. Here's some scriptures aimed at masters, Ephesians 6, 9. And masters, treat your slaves the same way without threatening them, because you know that both their master and yours is in heaven and there is no favoritism with him. In other words, masters, treat your slaves judiciously, fairly, equally. Don't show favoritism. And don't think that just because you are, have a higher economic status that God favors you over the slave. No, he does not. Colossians 4.1, Masters, supply your slaves with what is right and fair, since you know that you too have a master in heaven. In other words, give your slaves food and clothing and implements to work with. Now, how about scriptures for slaves? 1 Corinthians 7, 21 through 24. Were you called while a slave? It should not be a concern to you. But if you can become free, by all means, take the opportunity. So Paul there shows that he prefers freedom if you can get it. But he's not going to start a slave revolt. For he who is called by the Lord as a slave is the Lord's freedman. Likewise, he is called as a free man is Christ's slave. You were, brought, you were bought at a price. Do not become slaves of men. Brothers, each person should remain with God in whatever situation he was called. So Paul there says, take your opportunities if you can, but if not, live as a Christian in your situation. And the same thing applies today, too. If you're in a situation that you can't get out of, you just have to bear it and endure it. For example, you're in a job, you can't find another job, and you hate your job. How often have we been in that situation? I have spent many years of my life that way. You just have to bear it, and then if you can get out of it, get out of it, which I did. Galatians 3.28, there is no Jew or Greek, slave or free, male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. So salvation is offered to slaves as well as to freemen or to masters. That has, that's going to have a powerful social effect. Colossians 3.11, in Christ there is not Greek and Jew, circumcised and uncircumcision, circumcision and uncircumcision, barbarian, Scythian, slave and free. But Christ is all in all. So in Christ, we all have equal status as born again. Not economic status, of course, or social status, but as before the throne room of God, the most important status of all, we are all equal. 1 Corinthians 12:13, For we were all baptized by one spirit into one body. 
whether Jews or Greeks, whether slaves or free, and we were all made to drink of one spirit. Whether you're a slave, whether you're free, you drank of the same Holy Spirit. Ephesians 6, 5 through 9. Slaves, obey your human masters with fear and trembling in the sincerity of your heart as to Christ. Don't work only while being watched in order to please men, but as slaves of Christ, do God's will from your heart. Serve with a good attitude as, the, as to the Lord and not to men. Now, he's not talking about employees. Now, he's talking about slaves. Serve with a good attitude to your masters, knowing that whatever good each one does, slave or free, he will receive this back from the Lord. So the slave has an opportunity to get rewarded from the Lord, just like the master does. Just like the master does. Verse 9, And masters treat your slaves the same way without threatening them, because you know that both their master and yours is in heaven, and there's no favoritism with him. This reminds me of a, a Darwinist guy in the antebellum south in New Orleans. He wrote some kind of article saying that slaves did not have slow, souls because they were of a backwards race, and evolution has proved that onward and upward, just like the early social Darwinists were racist in the early 20th century, the Planned Parenthood people. And he was immediately denounced in the newspapers. I think that guy's name was Josiah Knott. I remember being struck by this when I was reading a bunch of literature about the war between the states. And the general approach that people used to attack Mr. Knott was that how can black people not have souls? Adam and Eve, they came from Adam and Eve just like white people did. And Adam and Eve were human. So you see that basic Christian teaching is going to percolate and spread like leaven through unjust human institutions. I'll give you another good story. President Andrew Jackson was dying on his deathbed, and all of his family and his slaves were gathered around to bid him farewell. And he looked at his slaves, and he's crying, and he says, I'm going to see you soon. His slaves are Christians too. And he says, I'm going to see you soon. And where there is, there ain't no slavery. And where I'm, excuse me, and where I'm going to be, where we're going to be, there is no slavery. Colossians 3:22 through 25, Paul says this, Slaves, obey your human masters in everything. Don't work only while being watched in order to please men, but work wholeheartedly, fearing the Lord. Now, if you have a slave like that, and you, are you going to tend to want to treat them kindly, give them more positions of responsibility, trust them more, treat them more kindly? If you got a slave that's like you just can't help but go out. Your heart can't help but go out to a slave like that. Whatever you do, do it enthusiastically as something done for the Lord and not for men, knowing that you will receive the word of an inheritance from the Lord. You serve the Lord Christ. For the wrongdoer will be paid back for whatever wrong he has done, and there's no favoritism. I had another story. I remember I was driving down I-20 and saw a historical place for Alexander Stevens. This was somewhere, is that Crawford, Georgia? It's somewhere between Georgia and South Carolina. And I went in there, and uh, Stevens had a couple of slaves that were getting old, and they were freed, of course, after the war. But he built them homes on his property, and they lived on his property. For, I assume, it, I'm sure it was free of charge. The slaves had no money, nowhere to go. And that show, there was a lot, especially among uh, house slaves, there was a lot of human connection between the masters and the slave and the slaves in many cases. And the reason was is because, in many cases, they believed in Christ because there was a lot of Christians amongst the slave-owning community, lots of them. Now, I don't know whether Stevens was a Christian, and I don't know whether his slaves were, so that might have been, not been a good example to use, but I do know that Christianity made a terrible, terrible institution a lot more bearable. It's a good historical uh, uh, books written about Christianity amongst the slaves in the American South. Christianity spread like wildfire through the, through the slave population. 
1 Peter 2, 18 through 20. Household slaves submit with all fear to your masters, and not only to the good in general, but also to the cruel. For it brings favor if, mindful of God's will, someone endures grief from suffering unjustly. That's something to think about as you think about your boss. For what credit is there if you sin and are punished and you endure it? But when you do what is good and suffer if you endure it, this brings favor with God. Now here, Peter is so concerned about slave revolts, he says, look, if somebody's cruel to you, don't try to poison his next meal or poison his wine or stab him in the back or something, you know, don't do that. I tell you, there's something about Christianity that calms the passions in unjust situations. I, I think about, I talked to a Tea Party guy, this was years ago when the Tea Party was big, talking about the injustices of the federal government, and he had his guns ready, and he said that pretty soon people were going to be marching in the streets, and he was going after those dirty libtards. And I'm thinking, oh my gosh, oh my gosh. And then I've got a friend who's a quasi-prepper. He lives on a homestead, and he grows vegetables and things. And he says, and all his prepper friends are talking about they got their guns ready to shoot people who try to steal the vegetables. And he says, are you really going to, and my friend says, are you really going to kill people over food? So you see, even the prepper community is leavened by Christian thinking. It Christianity tends to take the hopelessness and despair of the unjust situations in the world and to focus our hope for final deliverance from these unjust situations to heaven, not to this earth. And of course, that's what Karl Marx said. See there, Christianity is just the opium of the masses. Well, if Christians are the opium of the masses, I tell you what Marx is for the masses, arsenic, because his stinking system of communism still around, unfortunately, in China. His stinking system of communism, communism has killed more people than any other ideology or government known to mankind. Opium of the masses. Yeah, right. Philemon 1, 16-17. No longer as a slave, but more than as a slave. Paul is talking to Philemon about Onesimus. Philemon, who lived in Colossae, treat Philemon no longer as a slave, but more than a slave, as a dearly loved brother. He is especially so to me, but even more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So if you consider me a partner, accept him as you would me. Now there's Paul actively plump, pumping, pushing for Philemon's emancipation. I'm sure he didn't say that, but he says, you know, treat him as more than a slave, as a dearly loved brother, blah, 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 blah. He's helped me out, you know, even though he ran away. Who knows what he pilfered and stole when he ran away, but hey, he's your brother now. That is a change in status that's going to affect the way human beings treat each other. Titus 2.9, slaves are to be submissive to their masters and everything to be well-pleasing, not talking back. So slaves are to behave nicely and masters are to behave nicely. And these critics who hate, who say Christianity is in favor of slavery, are nothing more than tendentious, biased Christ-haters who will do anything to bring dishonor upon the God who made the universe. And I, quite frankly, don't give a flying frip what they say. And I might mention this in history. Who led one of the greatest abolitionist efforts in the world? That was William Wilberforce, a guy who had nothing but opposition in the British Parliament. He was a Christian, a dedicated Christian. And he finally got the bill passed in the British Parliament to end the slave trade. And speaking of slave trade, a prominent slave trader named John Newton got converted, and after he got converted, he wrote Amazing Grace, and even Joni Mitchell singing that hundreds of years later. Now, let me point out that defenders of Christianity often make this similar type arguments about the status of women. They say, well, women were of subjugated status in the ancient world. We couldn't advocate the instant 
reform, revolutionary reform of the domestic relations laws back then, but when men started treating women as fellow heirs of the grace of Christ, as they are enjoined to do, well, then that's going to have an effect on how women are treated. And I have no doubt that that's true. However, there's one thing that needs to be distinguished. Improving the status of women is not quite the same thing as improving the status of slaves because a master of a slave does not have a biological right to claim superiority of rank. He's just another human being. But in the case of men and women, You've got biology, biological differences, psychological differences, and you've got godly differences, creation differences. God made men and women to be complementary. He didn't make slavery. He did make marriage. So we've got to be careful to distinguish those two arguments. On whichever side, if you're an egalitarian, you need to distinguish the arguments. And also if you're a complementarian. Now, what kind of masters are these that slaves must regard to be worthy of all respect? probably believing and non-believing masters, because in verse 2, Paul singles out those who have believing masters should not be disrespectful for them. So that's probably the subset of all masters, believing and non-believing masters. All of them should be worthy of respect. Now, of course, Paul is assuming here that the non-Christian slave master is not beating the Gehenna out of the slave. I mean, you know, hard cases make bad law. As we often say, there's a right to self-preservation. If, if a master's beaten unjustly a slave he should try to escape if he can of course that's a hard thing to do he should do what's necessary to try to survive it's the same thing for husbands and parents paul tells parents children that they're supposed to obey their parents but he's talking about in the normal situation in a domestic family situation he's not talking about when the parents are abusing the children and pouring hot boiling oil on them and whipping them with the with sticks with clubs of course not talking about the normal case and the same thing with slave and freeman here if the master's behaving extraordinarily evilly the slave's got every right to do what he can to get out of the situation now why did paul have to tell slaves to be respectful of the master because now the slave is a christian and he knows he is free in christ he has confident access into the throne room of god he is an adopted son of god and this nasty old slave master is a pagan probably worshiping some stupid pagan god and I'm better than he is. So Paul had to be careful and say, well, you are better spiritually, but economically and socially, you're still got to obey the laws. Then you're supposed to show them respect. That comes from the word time. Now that word time, as is well known, has two definitions. It can either mean money or respect. Now here it can't be money because slaves don't give money to their masters. They give respect to their masters, but they, obviously a slave's not going to be giving money to his masters. So the context defined makes us know what the definition of teammate, how it should be translated here, or how it should be understood. Now, it's interesting, you could make an argument from context that the previous use of teammate, which is in the last chapter when Paul said elders are worthy of double honor, double respect, double honor, and most people take that to be money. And I say, well, if you do take it as money, it's not a salary because there's mistos, there's another Greek word that you can use for salary. So if it is money, it's voluntary donations. But here you can make a context. It's just talking about esteem, respect, not money at all. Because the very next use of his word of time in the next several verses later here in chapter 6, time means honor and respect. It cannot mean money. Now I realize you can take the other argument that when he's talking about honoring the widows, that's probably talking about financial support. And so the, con the previous context supports taking the elders' honor as to be referring to financial support. I realize that. But I just mentioned this to say that it, it can go either way. But whichever way it goes, elders did not get a salary.
They might have gotten support, but not a salary. Voluntary donations, but not a salary. First Timothy 6, 3-5, If anyone teaches other doctrine and does not agree with the sound teaching of our Lord Jesus Christ and with the teaching that promotes godliness, he is conceited, understanding nothing, but has a sick interest in disputes and arguments over words. From these come envy, quarreling, slander, and evil suspicions and constant disagreement among people whose minds are depraved and deprived of the truth who imagine that godliness is a way to material gain. Now, Paul is unloading on false teachers, people who teach other doctrine, people who do not agree with the sound teaching of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, what that other doctrine is, I don't know. It consists of silly, silly disputes, arguments over words, and other places Paul talks about it as referring to silly myths. And it's interesting. I always want to find an example of this. I'm not learned in Talmudic literature, and I'm sure there was a bunch of stuff that could be candidates as to what this false teaching is. But none of the commentators, even Gill, who's a rabbinic expert, they don't give examples of what they're talking about. What they do is they immediately refer to Christian arguments. This is not Christian arguments that Paul's talking about here. This is heretical arguments, Gnostic Jewish heretics. As we said in previous chapters, the, the false teachers here were probably mixing up some kind of Gnosticism with Jewish legalism. Gnosticism being a belief that the body is evil, that there's a pure God way up there and you're separated from him by a bunch of angelic hierarchies that you got to have special gnosis or knowledge as to how to get through them, maybe like secret passwords. And since the body is evil, that means you can either get into asceticism, whipping the body with whips, or you can get into libertinism and letting the body go and indulging in food and sex. Well, we know that that's what it is. We'll just keep it that. I don't have any examples. Now, when Paul says if anyone teaches other doctrine, he could be talking about other than the doctrine of slaves need to honorably submit to their masters. But that's such a small part of the letter about submitting to masters. The main thrust of the whole letter of First Timothy is dealing with these false Jewish slash Gnostic false teachers. So I think that's what he's talking about here. Notice that he Paul says that the sound teaching of our Lord Jesus Christ is a teaching that promotes godliness. You want to be godly? Study the Bible. Oh, what I've just got to read 30 seconds a day. Study the Bible. It will encourage you to be godly. There is a false dichotomy out there. People who say, well, I don't want to stuff my head full of head knowledge and I want to love people. Folks, that is a silly distinction. The more you study the Bible, the more you will want to love people. Now, I realize you can learn the Bible academically and learn all kind of interesting facts about the Bible and miss the whole point. Of course, you can do that and you shouldn't do that. But don't be like the typical postmodern Wussy pussy evangelical going do 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 do. I just love people. I just love people. You know these people that talk like that all the time actually give a bad name to love. And all of you who think that Paul was all the time talking about love, well, look at what look at what he says about these false teachers. He said they're sick. They have a sick interest in disputes. Does that sound loving? Oh, Paul, he's not loving. He creates division. Nonsense. He treated Christians with nothing but respect and tenderness and kindness, but when it came to false teaching, he pulled out his heavy artillery and lit the fuse over and over again. He calls these false teachers conceited. He says they're stupid. They understand nothing. They're sick. They have a sick interest in disputes. Why was he so upset with these people? Because their stupid arguments, their logomachies, if you will, their disputes over what a word means, 
From these come envy, quarreling, slander, evil suspicion, and constant disagreement. And he says... These arguments occur among people whose minds are depraved and deprived of the truth. Now, that may mean the, the, the false teachers are arguing amongst themselves, and these false teachers are depraved and deprived of the truth. One more example of how lovingly he treats the false apostles. It could mean the people whose minds are depraved and deprived are the actual Christians there in Ephesus or around Ephesus who are being influenced by this nonsense. I don't know. I tend to think it's among the false teachers whose minds are depraved and deprived of the truth because I cannot imagine Paul saying that Christians had their had depraved minds and, and that they were deprived of the truth. So Paul lets them hold it. And then he says, these false teachers who are conceited, understanding nothing, they're sick, they're depraved, they're deprived of the truth. These false teachers, for the last problem that they have is they think that godliness is a way to material gain. They're preaching legalism and Gnosticism, which is not a teaching that promotes godliness, as he says in verse 3. That's the teachings of the Lord Jesus Christ. They're teaching this false godliness, and they're doing that as a way to material gain. Now, it could be these teachers, since they're Greeks, and Greeks love to charge for their lectures, as the sophists are famous for. It could be referring to that. But it's obvious they're making money off of what they're teaching. Now, I can't help but make an application here. What do you think about people living $23 million mansions and asking for money over TV so they can add on to their mansion? Oh, but it's all for the gospel, brother. Yeah, right. Who think that godliness is a means of gain. Now, these false teachers, as Ellison, the commentator, said, could have actually been teaching a theology of success and possessions. In other words, they could, it could be an ancient version of the prosperity gospel, that false heretical gospel that's everywhere on the TV. I just, this morning was asked to be interviewed by somebody on a TV network that I never heard of. So I looked it up on the Internet, and by golly, Kenneth Copeland and all kinds of prosperity and scream it and redeem it faith message types, mark it and park it, confess it and possess it, blab it and grab it, all over the website, and they want to interview me. I'm probably, I don't know what's going to happen, whether I'm going to do it or not, but I want to tell you something. Godless godliness true godliness is not a pathway to material gain i just wish these prosperity preachers preachers would take that verse and make a sermon on it i'd love to hear it now these disputes that paul was first of all he says these people are sick they have a sick interest in disputes and nasb version says a morbid interest in disputes i think sick is better i like that translation this is Holman christian study bible translation ellison says that that word came to be used for an intense craving for something John Gill says, quote, he is sick or diseased. His mind is distempered. He is like one in a fever that is delirious. His head is light and wild. His fancy is roving, and he talks of things he knows not what. Yes, Paul was so loving, wasn't he? Now, what kind of disputes did Paul preach against in his pastoral epistles. Well, in 1 Timothy 1, 3-4, he says this, As I urged you when I went to Macedonia, remain in Ephesus so that you may instruct certain people not to teach different doctrine or to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies. Who's related to who? Who's related to who? I want to be related to a leave, uh, 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 fa of the family of Aaron so I can be a priest, maybe. I don't know. 1 Timothy 4, 7, but have nothing to do with irreverent and silly myths, but rather train yourself in godliness 2 Timothy 4.4, 4, they will turn away from hearing the truth and will turn aside to myths. Titus 1.14, and may not pay attention to Jewish myths and the commands of men who reject the truth. Now, obviously these are Jewish myths. I don't have an example of them, 
but I'm told that there are hundreds of examples of this in the Talmud, and I haven't read the Talmud. I, I've read a little bit of the Talmud, excerpts from it, and it's the most soul-killing bunch of garbage you'll ever read in your life. It's horrible. And if this is the kind of stuff that the people in Ephesus were doing, I can understand why Paul would say, tell Timothy to stay away from it. Now, it's interesting, the commentators I looked at make application to Christians who are disputing over Christian doctrines, which is not what Paul was talking about here. Let me re give you an example. Here's Adam Clark. How little good have religious, religious disputes ever done to mankind or to the cause of truth? Most controversialists have succeeded in getting their own temper soured and in irritating their opponents. Indeed, truth seems rarely to be the object of their pursuit. They labor to accredit their own party by abusing and defaming others. From generals, they often descend to particulars, and then personal abuse is the order of the day. Is it not strange that Christians either cannot or will not see this? Cannot any man support his own opinions and give his own views of the religion of Christ without abusing and calumniating his neighbor? I know not whether such controversialists should not be dis deemed disturbers of the public peace and come under the notice of the civil magistrate. And <laughs> that is a great quote because that is exactly how some Christians argue. I mean, I had a cessationist put a comment on one of my anti-cessationist YouTube videos. And he starts out by saying, well, somebody tell this fool, just call me a fool. Doesn't know who I am. Doesn't know anything about me. And, you know, I might be wrong, but I ain't no fool. I gave a, a very reasoned exposition and disagreement of cessationism. It was not foolish at all. And this guy calls me a fool. And so I texted him back and said, so that's how you deal with your theological arguments. Is that very loving? Thought it was only charismatics who were supposed to not be loving. Apparently that's not so. Well, then he got very nice after that and, and started talking theology. And he was very, he behaved like a gentleman after that. But that was after he called me a fool. Now, it is amazing to me how Christians cannot disagree theologically without getting all upset. Just, I was in a theology night meeting at my local church, and a guy in the meeting, and he later apologized, but at the time he says, it's terrible the stuff you put out there on the internet. You know, and he just started reaming me out, apropos of nothing. We weren't even talking about what I put on the internet. His wife later got on his case, and he came to me, and he sincerely apologized, and I appreciate it, but it is amazing to me our Christians do not know how to argue. I have been a college professor amongst flaming liberals. Some liberals are not as bad as the stereotype of them. Some of them are willing to be a little open-minded. Most of them are not open-minded. They're very closed-minded. And I have had to learn to deal with them. And then, of course, when I was practicing law, oh, my gosh, lawyers, they love to argue and attack. But then they'll take you out to eat and you sit down at lunch and you act like it's no big deal. You know, it's all academic. And when you talk about theology, I realize that there are great theological implications that might flow from an erroneous theological position, but that doesn't mean that the person that holds that theological position is anything other than your brother. That's why I object to John Gerstner, the famous anti-dispensationalist reform writer who called dispensationalists heretics. No, they're not heretics. They're just wrong, but they're not heretics. They're good people. Let me give you another comment from Ellicott, another commentator. Quote, while so ignorant of the higher and more practical points of Christian theology, the false teacher is mad upon curious and debatable questions, such as the nature of the ever-blessed Trinity, God's purposes respecting those men who know not and have not even heard of the Redeemer and the like. That's the old pagans in Africa problem. Problems never to be solved by us while on earth. Questions, the profitless debating of which has rent asunder whole churches 
and individually has broken up old friendships and sown the seeds of bitter, irreconcilable hatred. Now, that's true. I, I think Ellicott's wrong in saying that we ought not to talk about the pagans in Africa question. I think it's a sincere question I had as a young believer. It needs to be answered, or at least be attempted to be answered. But it's not worth breaking up churches over and breaking up friendships over. I've got good friends now that are fanatically opposed to my view of the baptism of the Holy Spirit. I don't. I, I, that's fine. I'm not going to argue with them about it. That's the answer. If you if you find somebody who doesn't like your theology and he doesn't want to talk about it, well, then don't cram it down his throat. Just ignore it. Don't cast your pearls before swine. Ellicott has another quote here. Quote, verbal disputes, barren and idle controversies about words rather than things. That's semantic controversies. Such wild war as... Such wild war as also has raged, not only in the days of Timothy and of St. Paul, but all through the Christian ages, on such words as predestination, election, faith, inspiration, person, regeneration, etc. Well, those are good doctrinal stuff. You've got to talk about them. Nothing wrong with talking about them. But it is wrong in denouncing people as the off-scourings of Satan or something because they disagree with you on it. And some of that early Calvinist-Arminian disputation was really bad. Augustus Toplady, the author of Rock of Ages, he was a strong Calvinist. You should have seen the terrible things he said about Arminians. It's embarrassing. As a Calvinist, I'm embarrassed by what he said. I can't remember what he said, but it was embarrassing. So, But this is not what Paul's talking about here. You can discuss theology in a decent way without getting upset, but he's not talking about that. He's talking about false teachers. You've got to stop false teaching. You don't discuss false teaching. You don't bring them to the table and give them equal status. You sweep them out the door. Talking about disputes over words, Paul mentions that again in 2 Timothy 2.14. Remind them of these things, charging them before God not to fight about words. This is in no way profitable and leads to the ruin of the hearers. Let's say, oh, what are we going to call the baptism of the Holy Spirit? You know, the, the Bible has several different names for it. Yeah, we're going to argue over what we're going to call it. That's a waste of time. That's a semantic argument that has no content behind it. But now predestination, you want to argue over that, that, that is not a semantic argument. That has there's a lot of deep theology behind that one. And not only is Paul not telling Timothy to avoid fights over true doctrine, but also over moral purity. Sometimes you have to stand up and have church discipline against people who are out sleeping with their secretaries. Paul got into those kind of fights all the time. Here's Jameson Fawcett and Brown talking about these disputes over words. Logomachies, that's a fancy Greek word that comes from word battles. Logo is word, and machies is from the word for battle. Logomachies, verbal contentions, splitting hairs, producing Hillel against Shammai. Those are the two Jewish pharisaical schools that fought all the time. And Shammai against Hillel, relative to the particular mode in which the punctilios of some rites should be performed. Should we wash the left thumb first, or should we wash the right thumb first? In this sort of sublime nonsense, the works of the Jewish rabbis abound. We now go to verses 6, 7, and 8 in 1 Timothy 6. But godliness with contentment is a great gain. This is but there is to contrast these false teachers who are trying to get rich teaching this Jewish legalistic nonsense. Only opposition to that are those who are teaching the true doctrines of Jesus that that produces godliness with contentment and that is a great gain of course it's not financial gain but it's a spiritual gain there he mentions godliness again verse 3 just rem to, rem to remind ourselves here Paul says the sound teaching of our Lord Jesus Christ and with the teaching that promotes godliness he equates sound teaching with godliness and here in verse 6 he says this this kind of teaching will produce godliness with contentment 
In other words, you're not going to be lusting for money and craving for money. You're going to be content with what you have. For he says in verse 7, For we brought nothing into the world, and we can take nothing out. That's just the old formal way of saying you can't take it with you when you go, is the way we put it. But if we have food and clothing, we will be content with these. Now, Paul has got a great passage to the Philippians about contentment concerning money. Philippians 4, verses 11 through 13. I don't say this out of need, for I've learned to be content in whatever circumstances I am. I know both how to have a little, and I know how to have a lot. In any and all circumstances, I have learned the secret of being content, whether well-fed or hungry, whether in abundance or in need. I am able to do all things through him who strengthens me. Now, notice Paul is also content when he has a lot. We don't often point that out. It's the, the most logical thing to emphasize is, is how you can be content when you don't have a lot. But even when you do have a lot, Paul says he's not out there trying to get more. That's the trouble with rich people. They get rich, and they got to have more and more, and pretty soon they don't need the money for what they can buy. They want the money for power, or they want the money like they look at dollar signs, uh, di dollar sign digits like digits on a pinball machine. Oh, I'm racking up the score here, and I'm beating my competitors. They don't really care about the money for it. There's only so much money you can use. They bought all the big houses and airplanes that they can think of. But at any rate, a Christian, I remember one time I went to a, I don't want to mention the organization, let's just call it WAM. I went to a WAM convention, and there was this young woman there. I think she was married with kids, a young married woman in her 20s maybe. And she was trying to tell me about the wonderful material benefits of WAM. And she said she was a missionary. And I said, oh, a missionary, and I'm interested in that. So I started asking her about what kind of mission stuff she does. She talked for about two seconds about missions, and then she went about went back to talking about drawing circles and selling product. I could just see the dollar signs in her in the her pupils of her eyes were like dollar signs going ka-ching, ka-ching, ka-ching as they rolled up over the whites of her eyeballs. And I thought, this woman is eaten up with the lust for money. It reminded me of Gollum on Lord of the Rings, that little toad-like creature that was holding on to his precious, his precious, his little gold coin or whatever it was that was money. And that's what happens. You start lusting for money, and it will eat your soul out till there ain't nothing left, and you're just a hollow cadaver, an excuse for a human being. Let's look at some scriptures that talk about how you can't take it with you when you go. Job 1.21, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will leave this life. The Lord gives, and the Lord takes away. Praise the name of Yahweh. Psalm 49.17, For when he dies, he will take nothing at all. His wealth will not follow him down. Ecclesiastes 5.15, as he came from his mother's womb, so he will go again. Naked as he came, he will take nothing for his efforts that he can carry in his hand. So you see, this can't take it with you. It goes all through the Bible, all in the wisdom literature, which is appropriate. In fact, this idea that you can't take it with you go, as well as if you have food and clothes, that's all you need. Be content with what you have and so forth. Actually, that's actually not unique to Christianity or to Paul. These sentiments are found in Greek Stoic philosophers, as Ellison points out, and Paul was familiar with those moralists. He knew Greek literature just as well as he knew Jewish literature. Ellison points out that many of his list of sins and virtues are similar to those Greek writers, those Greek Stoic writers. Adam Clark says there are some sayings in Seneca which are almost verbatim with this of St. Paul. So this is natural wisdom as well as spiritual wisdom. Money will destroy you. It's amazing how many people pay no attention to that. Rich people, in my opinion, are the most unhappy people on earth. All you got to do is 
read their blog posts or read articles about them or watch the A&E biographies of them. They're all of them miserable, unless they're Christians. Now, John D. Rockefeller wasn't miserable, but he was a dedicated Christian. But you look at people like Andrew Carnegie. He was a deist, a left-wing political guy, billionaire leftist, kind of like George Soros. He wasn't happy. He's over there in his mansion in Scotland talking about world peace. While Meanwhile, back in Homestead, back in Pennsylvania, his factories are out of control. The workers were treated terrible. They had big labor riots, and they became famous in American history. So, And another good thing, get on A&E and watch all the biographies of rich people, the robber barons, so-called. See how happy they were. Suicides, divorce, you know, the usual pathetic things. The money didn't help them. It didn't make them happy. I always tell young Christians, if they're listening, I say there's two things that you need to understand and be happy for the rest of your life. One is how to deal with the opposite sex, and number two is how to deal with money. If you can handle that, 99% of your problems are over with. Be happy with food and clothing. Proverbs 38 says this, Keep falsehood and deceitful words from me. Give me neither poverty nor wealth. Feed me with the food I need. In other words, don't start looking to get rich. But on the other hand, don't let me be poor. I need food to eat. God, you give me the food I need. Matthew 6:11. This is in the Lord's Prayer. Give us today our daily bread. And consider the rest of the Sermon on the Mount about birds fly around with no need to store up food, and yet they've got plenty of food. The lilies of the field don't have clothes, but they're dressed up just fine, magnificently, beautifully. Don't sell your soul to money. And this is a great, great three verses here in 1 Timothy 6, 6 through 8. Godliness with contentment is a great name. Wouldn't you love to hear Joel Osteen preach a sermon on that? Or Creflo Dollar? Or Kenneth Copeland? 1 Timothy 6, 9 through 10, and we'll finish it up. But those who want to be rich fall into temptation, a trap, and many foolish and harmful desires, which plunge people into ruin and destruction. I just told you about some modern examples of that. That's absolutely true. Nobody can deny that. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. And by craving it, some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pains. All right, on the last couple of verses, I talked about how loving money will destroy you. Now I want to go against another error that people get into, sort of a Gnostic type error. Money is evil because it's material. No, money is not evil. It's never said to be evil. It's the love of money is the root of all evil. Give me neither poverty and wealth, but feed me with what I, the food I need, as the proverb said. Well, that takes money. There's nothing wrong with money, but if you worship it and desire it, in fact, in verse 9, Paul says, for those who want to be rich, that's their desire, that's their goal, that's their focus, that's their the be-all and end-all of their existence is, I want more money. Those are the guys that fall into temptation or trap and many foolish and harmful desires and into ruin and destruction. Let's look at some of the many scriptures that talk about the problems with wanting to be rich. Not, and notice I did not say it was a sin to be rich. It's a sin to want to be rich. Money is not evil. It's the love of money that's evil. Here's some scriptures. Proverbs 23, 4. Don't wear yourself out to get rich. Stop giving your attention to it. Proverbs 28, 20. A faithful man will have many blessings, but one in a hurry to get rich will not go unpunished. Matthew 6:19-21 Don't collect for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy. This is Jesus talking. And where the thieves break in and steal. Back then, clothes were a store of value. They used clothes for money. And moth and rust can eat up clothes. 
But collect for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys, and where thieves don't break in and steal. Think about all those Egyptian pharaohs stuffing their tombs full of gold for the afterlife so they can carry it with them. They didn't believe this common proverb that you can't take it with you when you go. The, the Egyptian pharaohs, the early ones, they thought they could take it with them when they uh, went. So they stuffed their tombs full of gold, and who gets some grave robbers, plunder all the tombs. Thieves broke in and st stole it all. So what good did all that do? They spent years while they were alive building these incredible tombs, and it didn't do any good. All they do now is create tourist spots for tourists to go to, and people can make YouTube videos about them and, and think about what th their life was like, but they're gone. They're gone with the wind, folks, and they ain't coming back again. Jesus continues, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Matthew 6:24. No one can be a slave of two masters, since either he will hate one and love the other, or be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot be slaves of God and of money. Now, he didn't say money was evil, but he said to be a slave of money is bad. Matthew 6, 25-33, This is why I tell you don't worry about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Isn't life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the sky. They don't sow or reap or gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Aren't you worth more than they? Can any of you add a single cubit to his height by worrying? And why do you worry about clothes? Learn how the wildfires of the field grow. They don't labor or spin thread, yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was adorned like one of these. If that's how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and thrown into the furnace tomorrow, won't he do much more for you, you of little faith? So don't worry saying, what will we eat, or what will we drink, or what will we wear? For the idolaters eagerly seek all these things. See, they're wanting, wanting material things. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be provided for you. It's one of my most favorite passages of the scripture because I was somewhat short of money when I was first married, and it became a thing of constant worry, and I worried anyway. And, oh boy, when you learn freedom from that, and you can, you can withstand 2008 stock market crashes, and you can withstand coronavirus economic collapses, because God's going to take care of me because I believe in him and I seek first the kingdom and not money. Psalm 62.10, place no trust in oppression or false hope in robbery. If wealth increases, pay no attention to it. Pay no attention. If, if wealth increases, that, that shows it. Hey, you might be, let's face it, if you have morals, if you're disciplined, if you work hard, if you use the gifts that God gave you, you're very likely going to produce wealth. Wealth for you and wealth for your family. But don't pay attention to it. Remember, it's God that gave you the wealth, and also you need to give a lot of it away. As And a lot of wealthy people do that. Give money to charitable causes, and, and in the case of Christians, to poor people and itinerant ministers and ministries. So don't focus on that wealth, Psalm 62 says. Now, once again, let me point out that many godly people have been rich. Remember Abraham? He was loaded to the gills. How about Joseph of Arimathea? If Joseph of Arimathea had not been rich, Jesus would have been thrown into a robber's grave, a pauper's grave, and we would not know the story about him getting resurrected. Nobody would have seen him in that grave. Thank God for Joseph of Arimathea. Thank God for his love of Jesus. He was rich. This reminds me of a story at a well-known evangelical Bible college. It was a mission conference of some sort, and a bunch of missionaries were in there speaking. And one of the missionaries got up and started saying, people are chasing money. They're chasing money. They're not giving money to missions, not giving money to missions. What a terrible thing this is. What a terrible thing. And he went on and on like that. 
And in the audience, there were some wealthy Christian businessmen. So one of them raised his hand and he said, let's just call the speaker John Doe. I don't know what, what his name was. The businessman raised his hand and said, see this beautiful room in here? See that microphone you're using? See all the paintings on the wall, all the chairs in here? Do you know that rich people paid for these from donations to this college? Ooh, I wish I'd have been there. I bet it was so quiet you could have heard a pin drop. We've got to avoid two extremes here, loving money and having a Gnostic idea that money in itself is evil. Those are two very bad extremes that need to be avoided at all costs. One last comment here in 1 Timothy 6.10. Paul says that some people, because of the love of money and craving for it, have wandered away from the faith. Oh, does that mean they've lost their salvation because they love money? Of course not. As Ellison said, this does not mean they lost their salvation. Rather, it means they have wandered away from godly living. And by the way, I, you know, I say a lot of bad stuff about the prosperity message. I really do. But I think there's a lot of people that think that the prosperity people are just in it for the to fool people and to get rich. And there is a lot of that, no question. But there's a lot of people in it that are very sincere Christians. They haven't lost their salvation. They've lost their way. And they're preaching stuff that is unbalanced and ungodly. But the Bible does have some stuff about prosperity. And I'm going to take care of your needs. It's not like there's nothing in the Bible about God taking care of your financial needs. So I keep, you know, when I hear people complaining about the wealth and health gospel, I ask them, okay, so what are you in favor of, sickness and poverty? Isn't balance a wonderful thing? Stay tuned for next week, and we'll give you a balanced presentation of the last portion of 1 Timothy 6. In verses 11 through 21 of 1 Timothy 6, Paul deals with some more admonitions to Timothy about rich people. And then he tells him to fight the good fight. Hope you stay tuned for that audio. Hope you enjoyed this one.